Hey everybody, how y'all doing? Lucretia's already laughing. I'm gonna avoid the liturgy that we usually do, so glad that was an enthusiastic response, super excited, grateful for y'all. Um, happy Father's Day, as Tina already said. Uh, also happy Juneteenth on a Sunday. This is exciting, right? Like we got two holidays combined. Like in some ways, like the sermon's already made. It's like, he's the father who frees us. Yes, like thank you God, praise Jesus, hallelujah, amen. Like that might be it. Like we could just go home or, or maybe do more worship and then go home. Uh, but it's really exciting to be preaching on both these days and to think about uh, what does it mean that we really do have a father that frees us and that there's something about a loving parent there's something about uh, this uh, way of love that frees us into growth, that frees us into healing, that frees us into next steps. In a way that some of us, we've exper experienced uh, maybe a parent's love or uh, a parent as someone that maybe did some control. Maybe even like their best efforts. Still, it was, there was some control and that's how they used their power. That's how they used their authority. They were trying to guide, but they ended up maybe like doing the thing where they put their arm out and you stumbled and fall, fell instead. There's something about a father, a loving parent who says, no, I want you to grow. I want you to heal. And I'm going to provide next steps for you. And I actually think that today there's something special that God's already doing that's going to continue. That's us getting some of that fatherly love. Love that will free us into our next step. Free us into healing. Free us into growth. I believe that. I believe we were already even experiencing it in worship. But there's something about that that also has a cost to it as well. It's also Juneteenth. This day that marks freedom. Freedom for folks that were enslaved. But if you know a his, the history about the holiday, and you know that's not everyone because it's kind of a new holiday. It's one of the kind of unfortunate, like there's a mass tragedy and then like we get a holiday because of that. Like I don't like those trades, but that seems to be like how we're doing things. Just a little real talk, like if I'm honest. But um, thanks, some people in the corner. Um, but uh, Juneteenth is actually a day that marks uh, the end of enslavement uh, that was happening in Texas. The Emancipation Proclamation was more than two years before. So there was a proclamation of freedom but there wasn't a demonstration of it in a practical way. See what I did there, Vineyard people? A proclamation and demonstration, right? But it, this is an unfortunate kind where there was a freedom proclaimed, but there wasn't a freedom enacted. Why? Well, it's because freedom had a cost. In this case, it was the economic system of slavery being undone, and that was too valuable for some people, so they held on to it. There's something about freedom where we all love it, in theory, we all love the word, we want to proclaim it, we want to celebrate, we'll barbecue around it. But what does it mean to truly be free? There's a cost to being free. And I want to ask you all at the top of this talk, are you willing to pay the cost to be free? Like you, at, right here sitting in these chairs, standing up, like, are you willing to pay the cost to be free? And are you willing to pay the cost to be free so you can be free so you can stay free and so you can join Jesus as you free others. So are you willing to pay the cost maybe in your time? Like actually looking at your calendar right now and saying, I'd be willing to free up some hours to do some things different, to experience that kind of freedom. What about your checkbook? Would you get your checkbook out or your Venmo, your accounts? I'm willing to let some money pass through this way or that way to be free, to stay free, and to free others.
What about your relationships? Would you be willing to build some relationships or maybe mend some relationships to experience freedom? What about thinking about how you uh, consider yourself right before God or before others? Maybe some of your thinking. Are you willing to let God speak into that in order to experience freedom? I think the Holy Spirit's here, so we might as well just take a few seconds and, and ask, are we willing to pay that cost, individually or collectively, as a body? And in what way are you willing to maybe pay a cost to experience freedom, deep freedom that's from the Lord? So just take maybe five, ten seconds, check in with God. You can close your eyes if that helps you. You can ask the Lord to convict you or to show you something. Holy Spirit, speak to your people. Show us what freedom means and looks like. God, we don't just want a proclamation of it from you or from us. We want a demonstration of freedom. Would you demonstrate to us today what freedom looks like? Amen. One of the questions we're going to ask today about freedom is, and what we're willing to pay is, what if it is having certain sorts of rights that we forgo for the sake of others? And what if it's not just rights that we forgo for the sake of others, but even the quality, the nature of being right itself? Some of y'all are shaking a little bit, because that, that's a hard one. Not just rights that you could, you know, let go, and then you're like, whoop, still got some in my back pocket though, right? But like, actually, what about being right as you see it yourself? That's what we're going to talk about today, and that's what we're going to explore as we continue with Corinthians and our series, Life in the Body. This is what God is up to as we discover more of this text, discover more of what Paul's saying. I want to pray one more time just for a spirit of freedom to be here as we do all of that. Thanks, God, that it says in your word that it is for freedom that we are free that the Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of freedom. So because we know we have access to you through the one Spirit, one Christ, one resurrection, one baptism, we have access to you. We say right now, would you provide your freedom here? Would your freedom wash over the sanctuary? Would this freedom come into this room in Jesus' name? Amen. Freedom matters a lot to Paul. You know, earlier we've already looked at this verse that says, all things are lawful for me. All things are free for me to do, but not all things are beneficial. Freedom is sort of like a watchword for Paul. He cares about it so much. It's marked some of the scripture we've already read, and we're going to unpack it even more today. For Paul, uh, throughout this time that we've been in the series, whether it's been reading 1 Corinthians, whether it's been listening to these talks, going to the Bible studies, we see that his material is a bit timeless, like he's, you know, writing more than 2,000 years ago, uh, but he's speaking to Corinth things that are relevant today. We see this, uh, we've seen this already, whether it's division in the church, check. You know, issues with sex and sexual ethics, check. Conflict that happens in the church, check. All relevant, check, 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 right? We see it. So today, what do we got? What kind of like issue do we have that's gonna be really relevant? It's going to be something we've been tweeting about, journaling about, like this week. It's food sacrificed to idols. 
Maybe Paul's streak ends here for us. Like this maybe isn't as relevant. Uh, and it's interesting, like actually in different places in the world, like this is actually still like a live issue. But maybe around our parts, a little bit less so. But I love chapters 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians. That's what we'll look at today. Because they help us see the why and the how of Paul's thinking. They allow us to see how Paul sees the body, how Paul sees the church, what he thinks of us as churchgoers. So we're going to kind of step back a bit today. Maybe there's some of you that will just be taking copious notes on food sacrifice to idols, like thinking about how it applies. Bless you for that. But for the rest of us, we'll be thinking about why Paul does what he does, and if that helps us in maybe some challenging issues in our day. We're going to dig in. The, the first thing, when we think about Paul, when we think about his work and even his writings in 1 Corinthians, is we've got to remember that his whole life changed through an encounter with Jesus. Paul went from someone that was fixed on rights. And part of the scriptures, it says that he was the chief of all the Pharisees. He was the one that saw himself, that believed he was right more than anyone else, to the point where he was willing to kill and to approve killings of others. That's his story, that he was so fixed on being right and his own rights as someone that knew the most, that was the chief Pharisee, until he was quite literally knocked off of his high horse. I'm glad that someone liked that joke. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> dad jokes, says Tina. Sorry, I'm not, I'm, I might not be in the video though. So Paul was originally this guy that was so concerned with what it meant to be right, so concerned that he would approve people's killings, so concerned that that was his identity, and he felt like that's what he was to do in the world. You know, it, it says in the book of Acts, the story of, you know, the early church, that he was someone that could see someone that was God's hero, God's hand was on his life, this guy named Stephen, and it says Paul approved of his killing. That's kind of just who he was. That was his identity. That was what he showed up to do. That's really all the scriptures at that time knew about him, right? When we look at that story of Acts. That's what we'd think happens to him. He's just a bad guy. But again, he was knocked off of his high horse. Even if we might not be extreme, as extreme as that, we can relate, I think, to Paul and to his story. How many times have we been obsessed about being right? How many times have we been obsessed about being right because of our own status? Hey, I'm from Baltimore, so I know if The Wire is a good show or not. Sorry, but I saw it happen to someone else from Baltimore in front of me. I was like, don't say it. And then the person was like, do you like The Wire? I'm like, no. Sorry, Andrew, I just had to do that. So how many times have we used our status to say, don't, come on. I would know. I'm right on this. How many times do we just care so much about being right? There's an unfortunate story of this in our household. Um, it didn't happen to me, but I heard firsthand from Tina. Uh, one of our girls, I'll let you guess who, Zoe, um, and she's just in the car and she says, just blurts out, I'm always right. <laughs> and Tina says, well, if you keep saying that, that's gonna be pretty annoying for other people. People might even think you're obnoxious. And she goes, no, mommy, I will always be kind, but I will always be right. It's like, no! Where did she get that from? Like, I have no idea. 
But I want to say something that might be like a sucker for us, right? A little bit of a punch of the gut. How many times have people kind of experienced the Christian community as that? Ooh, right? Zoe didn't even know she was preaching. I'll always be kind, but I will always be right. And so people being like, y'all ain't as kind as you think. This happens, yeah, ooh. Got some prophets over here today, people talking back. Noah started it. God is real. Okay, let's go. And this happens from any direction. You know, when I was uh, at Yale uh, as an undergrad, I experienced um, uh, just some new stuff for me. I I grew up in uh, the church, but it was kind of a mix of black church, Catholic church for school, Midwestern mainline. Ask about it. It's very different. It's very strange. Some people know about it. Some people don't. Um, so when I came to Yale, it was my first experience like kind of in more of like a evangelical culture, just seeing it, not really being a part of it at first. I blame Tina for that a little bit later on in my story. But I would see people that were so convicted and concerned about what it meant to be right. And like, I just kind of like rubbed them the wrong way through some of the things I cared about. So people, you know, would just proudly say, you're just wrong on this. I'm like, hello? Like, hi, nice to meet you. And at first, that started off maybe things about justice and my concerns about that. But then I noticed something weird. You guys might have noticed this too. The same person that said that, by the time they were a senior, said that with the same attitude, but it was about a different thing. So people actually were still just as concerned about being right, but they actually had flipped on maybe what they care about or some of the things that they thought were right. So that same person, then when I cared about, you know, being a disciple and following Jesus and what that meant about our choices and, you know, how we relate to others, relationships. They were like, why do you even care about that? I was like, wait, did you just say that about just? It was shocking to me. But it turns out sometimes when we're formed, we care a lot about being right. And we feel like we have knowledge, sets of experiences, a status that make that be something we are an expert at. Turns out we might have a little bit more in common with Saul pre-Paul than we thought. There's a different way, though. It's an encounter with love. It's this end of the Paul story, or really the beginning of the Paul story, when he's knocked off of a horse, and he sees this blinding light that actually does blind him. And Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's forever changed through an encounter, an encounter with love. And it's not just the love of Jesus, because he has to go to a house. And who's there? It's this guy named Ananias, who is told, you're going to have Saul come to your house. And he said, Saul? That Saul? God, do you know what you're doing? God apparently said he did know what he was doing. And then they met together. And they had a meal. And scales fell from Saul's eye. And then he had a new identity and a new story. He was marked by love, by an encounter with love. It makes me think that when certain lines are in uh, the text of 1 Corinthians, I kind of get them, where I think Paul's really concerned about people who are marked by love and encounter with Jesus and then join the body. Other people who haven't had that experience of being marked by love, Paul's like, we can't really be concerned about them. There's that great line a few chapters ago where it's like, you know, all the thieves, all the idolaters, all these people, we got to be concerned about them. But wait, I'm not talking about people, you know, outside of the church. That would be everyone. We couldn't even talk to people then. I'm talking to people who have been marked by love who have had an encounter with Jesus, that they're part of our body. That's who we really need to work on in terms of showing the way. Paul is obsessed with this. 
It's no surprise then that Paul opens up a chapter about being right, about rights and freedom with this in 1 Corinthians 8.1. Now concerning food sacrifice to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This encounter with love. Right here, this word knowledge, it's not like facts or reality or even truth. It's about special relationship that you have because you're connected to someone. Right? So if you're walking in the trees, you have some gnosis, some special knowledge based on your walk. But Paul says here, anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. That's a lot of us, right? Because he's favoring anyone who loves God. God has special knowledge about us. And that special knowledge looks like love. To be loved by God is to be known by God. And this encounter changes us, this encounter with love. This encounter with love knocks us off of our high horse of judgment, our high horse of being right, our high horse of connecting to some of the rights and status we think we have. Paul says all of that has to go for the sake of love. Quick story for us. There was a missionary in the 20th century named Frank Loback. He's one of my favorite people. He's written some great books. And he was a missionary to the Philippines. And his missionary effort, well, can I say, was horrible. <laughs> Just really, really bad. No one was coming to faith. No one was connecting to him. People actually kind of like were run off a little bit. They're like, I don't want to connect to that person. And he was this white Westerner going to this different culture. And he sat down one day, beautiful night out, beautiful stars, and he said, God, why is this going so poorly? And truthfully, this is like in his journal, God said something like this, Frank, you're racist. <laughs> Honestly, read the journal. And he's like, shoot, like I am. Like, I actually am. I'm bringing Jesus, or so I thought. I, I thought I had the right to do this as someone that knew about God, that was going to this other culture that didn't. I thought I was right about all these things, but I didn't have a heart for it. And he humbled himself. He had an encounter with love. He had a, this session with Jesus where Jesus spoke to him, and he repented, and he did something different. He actually said, why don't I serve and serve people well? If you know about him, you already know what I'm going to say. He actually created this method of literacy. He actually started the modern literacy movement called Each One, Teach One, Reach One. And so not only did tons of people learn how to read, but thousands came to follow Jesus. Because he said, instead of saying, I have a right for this to work, just by me going over as a Westerner with a Bible, with the name of Jesus, he was convicted that he had to go with love, and that changed everything. When we give up our special rights and the need to be right, we can finally truly discern and obey Jesus. We can discern what God is actually doing, because it turned out God wasn't just saying, hey, just show up in the Philippines and be who you are, and people will automatically come to Jesus, because who he was at the time was more of a white Westerner than probably a Jesus follower, given what God said to him. But it turns out we can discern what God is doing. And then we can courageously obey Christ. To Paul's listeners in Corinth, food sacrifice to idols was as much of an issue to be right about 
as it was of an issue to have like an answer to it, right? Like it wasn't just like, hey, what, what do we think? What do we know? People had like opinions about this and they cared about their opinions. And the church of Corinth in particular said, we're free, Paul. Did you catch that? We're free. We love being free. Did you see in the session about division, the section about sex, like we are free. We feel like we're fine to practice whatever we want. So their opinion on this was eat away. But do you know what to do? Asked Paul. Have you brought that before the Lord through your encounter with love? Have you listened to what the voice of Jesus might be saying? Because remember, freedom doesn't mean exercising your freedom to do anything because knowledge of your freedom builds up. Sorry, puffs up. But it's love that builds up. So I want to read next a section about food sacrifice to idols, but I want to give us some context. It's really not context in like what's happening in this time and more context for us to think about who we are in the story. I want us to become dinner guests almost or like we're lounging in a sitting room and we're overhearing this conversation about how to deal with a difficult issue and to lean in knowing that we're not going to catch all of the cultural references but we're wondering if, can we hear a rhyme from today? Or can we hear something that catches us? And we're like, I still don't really know why this is the issue, but I feel like I get a sense of what God might be saying through this. So please listen in that spirit. This is 1 Corinthians 8, and we're in 4 through 6, and we'll read a little bit more as well. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are, are, are all things and through whom we exist. Paul's saying here, Corinth, like I get y'all. Like I, I understand this, what you understand that like there aren't other idols. Like there's one God. Remember that encounter by love? It wasn't with many gods, it was with one. His name is Jesus. But he goes on. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. We see how Paul's discerning, right? And how he's transitioned to kind of walk out with obedience. Because he's saying here, I get it. There's no other gods. But he's also saying here, are you watching out for the flock though? Are you watching out for the weaker folk in our community? can see at the end of this by nine, is Paul mostly concerned about food or about community? Is he mostly concerned about what's going in or appetite or hunger or how we love one another in the body? To me, it's pretty clear, even though there are some striking things I think that are going to change with their diet if they follow what Paul is saying. We've got to bring this revelation through Jesus, this encounter from love to our rights. We've got to bring this revelation, what we're learning from Jesus through these encounters with love, and take them right to our rights, the things that we feel like we should be able to do. 
the things we feel like we can just do on our own, and say, how does love speak into that? How does love change that? Because love might change your hunger level, if you can get what I mean by that. You can have an appetite for something, but then you hear this passage about how to be a loving person in community, and you realize you need to change your diet. Not because you aren't right, not because you don't have rights, but because there's a weaker person, there's a stumbling block, and you need to obey courageously in a different way. Loving not to make folks comfortable, I think it's important, but loving to help folks not give idolatry a stronghold in their lives. You can maybe imagine a different scenario where you're with people from Corinth who want this. It's like, oh, let's just make y'all comfortable. I don't think that's the way Paul's at least writing this letter. He's saying there's some people that are really going to stumble. They really don't have the same kind of knowledge you have. And to love them well, we have to not eat this food so we don't give them a stronghold in their life. This process begins with an encounter with love, then bringing that revelation from that encounter into our need to be right and into whatever rights we think we may have. And that's called practical discipleship. After you discern, you have to practice your discipleship. Paul's actually giving these instructions, and people are supposed to try it out. Like, we're practicing how to be a community. We're practicing how to be a body. I don't think Paul's like, this is like 100% it. Like, he's not saying, like, here's what I've heard from on high. saying, let's just try this for now, because we want to care for these people. Have you ever thought about your faith as practice? As mostly trying. To me, when I think about that, that's really liberating. That's really freeing. Because it's not the right or wrong or this value of good or bad. It's saying, I'm just trying right now to love my body, to love my community. And I'm going to listen to the feedback from the people I'm actually trying to love. And I'm going to listen to feedback from God. In the vineyard, we call that L-shaped listening. Practical discipleship. And so we see Paul walk that out. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers from whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their failing, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Paul's different. <laughs> he's a little strange because he's thinking about community even before thinking about himself. He's thinking about how to love others well more than his own rights. And this is tricky. You know, Tina and I had a story. Um, our wedding anniversary was yesterday, and we had a story from 11 years ago. Thanks for some claps. Okay, there we go. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, we really felt like if we're going to have a party, we wanted a lot of people to be there. And we were, at the time, pastoring a community that was uh, full of people who were struggling with homelessness and people who often uh, struggled with some kind of substance abuse. And so Tina's mom, some of you know her, some of you don't, she's like, let's throw a party! And guess what parties have? It's those drinks! Let's go! Like, honestly, sorry, that's not your mom. I'm glad it's not Mother's Day. Because then I'm, maybe there's some grace for that. Because Anyway, so, but she really was like, let's celebrate. We got to go. And we were like, hey, we just have one concern. We have some guests. We're like, this might not be good. And her mom said, what? No, 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 no. This is like a function of our household, and we're going to do this right. And she kind of said like, no, this isn't about like a thing about Christianity, what Christianity says about alcohol. We're like, no, no, we're actually not talking about that. She's like, well, I am now. And I'm saying we're free to, I'm like, whoa, okay, you can just go off with that. 
We're like, this is about our friends. It's about our community. We just don't think it's going to be a good idea. And so in that case, like, it has to change for everyone, not just for them. So Tina's mom, she didn't get her way that time. Because it was thinking about other folks, thinking about community. But these things aren't easy. That wasn't easy. Those conversations weren't easy. And it so easily could have gone to, what's the right camp about the way we think about something like alcohol? We're like, that's not what we're talking about. But that's often what we do is we back up into corners instead of moving toward others in relationship and in love. If this seems like hard work, uh, in some ways it is. But sometimes I, I think about uh, the way that Jesus followers do this kind of thinking. I'm sorry if this is weird, but I can call it like thinking about like, how does God's will work out? And like, how do we do this? And I kind of call it like Christian constipation. It's like, how do I live my life, Lord? Like, how do I do this? You guys have probably been there. Maybe you've seen other people be there. I've been there before. But there's something about freedom where that doesn't seem free to me. And Paul actually has a way of thinking about this that should yield play. Play as we give up our own rights to an encounter with the one who is love and righteousness. When we discern hard issues and obey courageously, we get some reps in that change us, and that opens us to play. We actually see how uh, Paul gets here at the end of chapter 9. I'm going to have to explain this because some of y'all will be like, if this is play, I want no part of it. But hey, work with me. Um, this is 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. For though I am free with respect to all, I've made myself a slave to all so that I want win more of them. I think the win is a word that's really about I'm trying to show a way, and we're now sharing in this way. So it's not win like gaining a person. It's win as in I'm showing an, an opportunity, a, a way. Something's opened up, and now we're traveling together. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. So I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that I might, might by any means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings. This gospel, Jesus rescuing us, it's so wide that Paul wants to share in it, to share in the blessings. And when we read this, I think sometimes our modern ears can say, well, this sounds like inauthentic and hypocritical. How dare Paul? But Paul's saying, I want to serve these folks to actually become a slave to all, to learn from their culture, to learn from their way, and then to show up not to be right and not to use my rights to do anything to them, but to say, can we learn from that perspective together? What if it wasn't this one way that we had to do something right, but rather it was an encounter by love and opening that up so people saw that way of love as spacious enough for them too. Paul draws near to people to love them well, and he's encouraging us to do the same. This way that he's offering is this way where we're marked by love. We get to discern what Jesus is saying through those encounters, and we get to courageously obey. Oftentimes, even this language can seem strange, but we need to remember, I think it's helpful at this time, Paul's context. When Paul originally encountered people he thought were wrong earlier in his life, what did he do? He approved of their killing. And now when he encounters people who are living maybe differently than him, he gets close. He becomes like them. He shows them a way of life that is free, as opposed to stuck in certain kinds of rules and this need to be right. 
And those people, by their choice, are then sometimes won over by this new way of love. Could we see ourselves inhabiting that new way? Practicing freedom informed by love, which I think can look like play. Being less invested in being right or in whatever rights our identity supposedly give us, whether it's as an American, our gender, what, what we, our wealth status is, rich or poor, not those things, but instead practicing a freedom that's informed by love. I wonder if you can think about that earlier question of what you're willing to pay to be free, whether it's time or money, maybe it was about being right, and then think about, is there something about paying that cost that could free you to play in this way? I think those things are often related. I think they often keep us from playing when we're not willing to pay a cost to experience the freedom that God has for us. Almost at the end here, I just wanna share one more story uh, and then a few invitations. One of my favorite examples uh, of this was getting to know an organization called Global Link Africa in Uganda. And the organization was led by three folks, a Kenyan-born but Ugandan citizen um, named Jillian, a woman, and then an older gentleman who was disabled named Uncle Sam, and then uh, who's Anglican, and then another Anglican that was a little bit younger named Baker. And the way that they did play was hilarious because depending on where they went and who they were talking to, different ones of them would speak. And it was basically a game. So for the Anglicans, maybe they would have Uncle Sam get up, who was great in terms of his age, great in terms of how he could speak about the Bible, but being disabled, people said, but that's not, what? Like, we shouldn't, you shouldn't be the speaker here. And they kind of offended some sensibilities using like kind of how right Uncle Sam was in other ways. Or sometimes when they were speaking to people like Catholics who the Anglicans would have beef with, they were like, okay, Jillian, you go. Like they just sent out different people. Like, okay, Jillian, you can speak now because this will be a great opportunity for you to connect with someone else. Even though for Catholics, they might think maybe you shouldn't be the one speaking as a woman, but Catholics are marginalized in Uganda, so she could connect and build bridges with them. And it was almost like they thought, like, who should be the one to speak in every context? It was a game for them. And they had this mutual respect among the three of them to know when we say one should or shouldn't speak, that's not a, a, a personal thing. We're thinking about what kind of inroads do we have? It was amazing. And then we got to the rural areas of Uganda, and I was like, this is even more crazy because, like I said, in some parts of the world, the food sacrifice diet is still a thing, and so that was a thing there. Or people were making alcohol, and people said, well, they can never come to faith. And then our group said, you can, actually. But that was something that was a cultural thing. And so they were playing these games, trying always to see, what is Jesus calling us to do? What does love look like here? How can we give up our rights, maybe sometimes even playfully offend others, or not, depending on the context. Sometimes it's hard for us to think what that would look like. That's why that example is good for me to open up my imagination. But I think here in New Haven, in this town of differences that are so extreme from New Haven to a school like Yale, our multi-ethnic church context, it has so many different stories and backgrounds. New Haven County, which is surprising to people, but it's true, which is politically as diverse as the nation, who would have thunk it? But when you include all of New Haven County, that's true. Isn't this a place where we could play a little bit if we're ready to maybe give up some of our rights, maybe even our ability to be understood, which so many of us value so desperately and so dearly, 
to say, let's love people and to love people well. In the same way that it was pretty offensive for God to come down, to become a human, and to love us past so many boundaries and barriers. What would it look like? Jesus seemed like sometimes he was having a good time here. I think that we could do the same thing and try to live this way. Here's a few invitations for us. I'm going to invite the worship team up. One is, have you had an encounter with Jesus who is love? For some of us, maybe the answer is no to that. Or maybe it's been a while. And so this kind of relational way of knowing God feels pretty far from you. I'd love soon just to pray for the Holy Spirit to come and for us to be able to experience God uh, or experience God in prayer. And also for you to maybe even join a group this summer where you could experience God in community. Like we need to have fresh encounter with God with Jesus as one who is love. Otherwise, I don't think this is going to make sense at all. Because Jesus freshly encountering us always is surprising. It's always full of love, and it's even a little bit offensive as we see how God humbles himself to love us and even how God encourages us to love other people. Second, to ask God for wisdom and power to help you discern and obey. I'm not saying that any of this is easy. But if you read the first part of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, you know that wisdom is a huge part of what God is doing in the world. He's giving us wisdom through the Spirit and then giving us a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And lastly, examine your desire and longing for play as it relates to serving others. If this would work, who would you want it to work with? Is it your neighbors? Is it folks in our city that maybe you don't connect with? Is it people in this room? Is it uh, a, a story about multi-ethnicity, how you'd love to engage if you had the courage or bravery? I want to invite the Holy Spirit to come, because like I said, we have a good Father who gives good gifts, and he wants to heal us, and he wants to set us free. So Holy Spirit, would you come now? Would you give us an experience of your love and of your freedom so that whoever we're holding on to Whatever the things that would be a, a cost we're maybe not willing to pay, whether it's time or money, relationships, being right, would you ease those things out of our grip so we can live freer and more fully like you? Jesus, would you give us an experience of the Holy Spirit that would allow us to be people who could give up our rights and our need to be right? Right now, I just want to speak to folks in the room where those rights and need to be right, for you, that can manifest as frustration or as anger. When you encounter people or situations where something rubs against that, you actually have a manifestation of anger or frustration. I want to speak to you right now that you would experience peace from the Holy Spirit. That's you. you can just open up your hands. You can stay exactly where you are. You don't have to stand up or raise your hand, but just open up your hands like receiving a gift and receive the peace of Christ to minister to you as you navigate what it means to be a Jesus follower today. Your issue probably isn't food sacrificed to idols, but I want to commission you today to be a peacemaker, to be one who brings freedom from the Spirit and who brings love. Spirit, you continue to minister to these folks. 
prepare us, God, as we're about to worship you in singing.